So I was thinking as we continue um, this kind of conversation, this series about what's it look like to follow Jesus, I was thinking about how um, if you know me very well, you know that I'm not super handy. Like, I can be taught things, but when it comes to, like, construction, um, my wife's way more talented than I am. Um, also true, right? Um, a few of you were on a mission tri- missions trip this summer with me, and they were nodding yes, but, like, I am capable of working and... Um, so I'm going to move on from there. But I can be taught things. And so several years ago, I worked at a baseball park. And um, I worked for a guy, and it was like a, like a kind of a nice baseball park where, like, there were some minor league games and, like, semi-pro stuff and high-level high school baseball. And, and the bummer is now, if you drive by it, it doesn't look nearly as nice as it used to. But the guy, Rick, who ran it, Rick um, used to work for the New York Yankees in their spring training field, and so he's pretty talented and knew what he was doing, and so Rick hired me to work with him because I played baseball, and he's like, all right, well, you can work with me during this season of the year, and and I'm like, great, and so I started working in the spring, and um, they had just torn out like two and a half, three feet deep of the infield on a baseball field, and I'm like, why do we do this? And he goes, well, you have to do this every so often because you got to redo it. And I'm like, oh, how does this work? He goes, well, first we put rock in the bottom, and then we throw in um, some sand, and then we throw in dirt, and then we put in clay, and then we put this stuff called fielder's choice on top. I'm like, all right, well, it makes sense. And he goes, so um, it was, had all been ripped out, and they put in new drainage and all kinds of stuff. And, and so he's driving this tractor every day, and most of what I did was dig holes with a shovel. Um, and, and eventually, though, he would start to teach me some things that he did. And, and he didn't really trust me on that John Deere tractor that had, like, the bucket on the front and grater on the back. He didn't trust me for several weeks, but finally he did cave, and he taught me how to use it, and I was in the one. Um, but he taught me for a selfish reason, which I'll explain in just a few moments. But, but we worked on this ball field, and maybe he shouldn't have taught me because there was one day I did hit his pickup truck with the bucket on the front, but that's another conversation for another day. But Rick... Um, taught me, and he wasn't like a master teacher, like, because he was just a guy who took care of baseball parks, but he was a guy who um, wanted to do the watching part of teaching, so I would say it this way, right? For, for master teachers, great teachers, they embrace a philosophy, like, I do, you watch, makes sense, right? We're with her there. Um, I do, you help, so I'm still doing it, but you're going to help me do this, and then you do, I help, right? And then the last one is, you do, I watch, See, Rick was a good teacher because he wanted to get to the part where it's, you do, I watch. And so Rick did that part well. In fact, sometimes he'd just go lock himself in his office and, like, let me know when you leave. Um, but, but that was what it is. You do, I watch. That was the goal was to get to that place. And so I was thinking how, what's it look like for us to think about this idea of becoming a great teacher? Some of you are teachers by profession and those kind of things. But, but here's the reality. Jesus was a master teacher. In fact, if you were to go through the Gospels, I could point all this out where it's over and over again, he, he just does something, and they watch, and then he does something, and then he helps, and, and then um, they do something, and he kind of talks to them about what they just did, and then he says, all right, you go do. Right? We're going to end with that today, and for Matthew chapter 28, it'll be the text we look at one of many today. But, but this idea that Jesus was a master teacher, why does this matter? Because Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, and you and I are invited to become his followers, his apostles, his students. 
And so for us to begin to think about what does it look like to be the disciples or the followers or the apprentices of Jesus, over and over again in the New Testament, nowhere does he say, hey, I want you to, to believe just a certain thing or just to have, just trust me in a certain way. I mean, those are a part of it, but it's more encompassing than that. It's all-encompassing, in fact. To become a disciple or a student of a rabbi is for us to reorient our entire life around that. And so here's the reality for us today. He's inviting us to something more. He's inviting us to say something greater. For our entire life, we said, we've said it this way, and we'll say it again, to be a disciple, a follower, an apprentice of Jesus requires us to reorient our entire life around Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, or to use a, a modern-day word, to be a Christian, requires us to reorient our entire life around Jesus. We've said, like, well, that sounds pretty lofty and pretty difficult, and so we've talked about three kind of goals of how to do that, and we've looked at a couple of them, but here are the three goals of how we might do that, right? Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. So be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about what's it look like to be with Jesus. In other words, we believe that there's a way for us to daily spend time with him, to become so connected to God in such a way that we sense his presence whatever we are doing. I love John Mark Comer's words on this idea. He writes this, The first and primary goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. In other words, we sense the Spirit's presence in whatever it is we are doing in life. So I'm driving to work, and I sense the Spirit's presence. Or if you're driving in the snowstorm the last couple of days, you really did sense the Spirit's presence, hoping not to meet him more closely. Right? I'm checking email and sensing the Spirit's presence. I'm learning to live in whatever I am doing and recognizing I want to be connected to the very Spirit of God in whatever it is I am doing. And so last week, we talked about this idea of becoming like Jesus. And so it was this idea that we all have practices and rhythms and habits of our lives, but what do those things lead us to? Are there things that are the practices and rhythms and habits of Jesus, or are they other kinds of things in which we do? Right? And so we talked about there are spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, things we do. They're not new things, honestly. In fact, they're the practices of people of God for centuries and centuries. And they are like things like silence and solitude and meditation and prayer and reading scripture and learning and worship and all these kinds of things and confession. And these things are practices in and of themselves that don't make us like Jesus, but collectively by embracing them, they are ways of living they help us stay more connected to the Spirit. And then we become, over time, people who, because of the practices and the habits and rhythms, look and sound like Jesus. In fact, here's the question we asked last week. Are the practices, habits, and rhythms of your life leading you to become who you want to become? And I ask this question. Who are you becoming? All those things we do every single day, the little decisions we make, the habits that we live out of, over and over again, they are shaping us into something. What we read, what we watch, what we listen to, they all shape us into something. And so the question for you and I is, who are you and I becoming? And if the goal of our life is to be a disciple, an apprentice, a follower of Jesus, are the things you and I doing going to lead us to become like Jesus? Which leads to the third one for today. To do what Jesus did. 
What does it look like to do what Jesus did? And we could read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they all point out lots of things Jesus did. And so we're going to look at just a few texts today as we kind of think about what did Jesus do and how am I called to do those same things. And so here's what we see. This passage might be known, well known to you, but it might be a little misunderstood, so we're going to talk about it just a little bit. And so here we are from Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, this line begin with, as Jesus was walking, so as he was going about his day, he's beside the Sea of Galilee, and he calls these two brothers, and he says to them, come follow me. Come follow me. Come be my disciple. Come be my apprentice. Come learn from me. Come walk with me. Come live with me. Come learn how I live and how I teach and how I act and be a part of this, right? So that's the beginning part of this. But the second part we probably often misunderstand. He says this, I will make you fishers of men or fishers of people. And you're like, yeah, well, that probably has to do with like evangelism and getting people to know Jesus. Well, maybe in part. But you also probably need to know, we need to know that That was also a first century phrase used to describe a great teacher because great teachers drew people in. And so you were a fisher of men because your teaching was so good that others were drawn to you. So what he says to James and John, who were obviously not super well educated because if they had been like the best of the best in terms of just education system, right, they were probably very wise when it comes to fishing, but not wise in terms of the academy they find themselves not being invited to be teachers themselves. They're past that point in life. But Jesus says, I see something in you that others may not see, so will you come follow me, and I will make you a great teacher. You will be a great rabbi yourself. And they leave, and they follow him. I know, like, that's a pretty big grass fry, you and I, and you're like, well, okay, what's that have to do with me? Here's the thing. If when Jesus calls to you and I, because he still does, and he says these words, will you follow me? And then he says to you and I, I want to make you a great teacher. Oh, yeah, that's for somebody else. No, no, that's for all of us. If you choose to follow Jesus, you're called to become a teacher. Again, reading on, jumping to verse 23, same chapter, here we find these words. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Again, we see some things that Jesus did. Like, he taught, he taught them, and it says he proclaimed the good news, or we would call that preaching. Um, and he healed people. And so these things that Jesus did here in this text, you and I are supposed to do as well. And we'll get to them a little more because right now you're going, I don't know about these things. So we're going to keep going. Jesus then, in Matthew chapter 8, we find this. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests. 
but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's homeless. I added that line. It's not there. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Sounds unreasonable at first glance. Got to be honest with you. Sounds like a request. It's like, you want me to let the dead bury their own dead? I don't know if you know this. Like, if you lost someone you love, if you like, he says, I lost my dad. You're like, well, that's fine. Move on. That's like, sounds so callous and not helpful. It doesn't sound like the character of Jesus we find throughout the Gospels. So we feel like, well, there must be more to this. Well, there is. Here's what's more to this. First, he says to the first guy, hey, listen, um, I have no place to live. You really want to follow me? Like, I have no place I call home. Friends take care of me. That's where I go. So are you sure that's the life you want? But you can come. To the next guy, he says, well, hey, um, let me just go bury my dad. And you're like, well, that sounds like a reasonable request, which is a reasonable, reasonable request in our day, but in his day, it's a little bit different because a year earlier, his dad would have been buried in a tomb. And so this would have been the marker of a year later. So it's been a year after the death in which you would then go get the bones and you move them to another place because someone else gets to use that tomb. And so you had to move the bones. So it wasn't necessary. So it wasn't like you had just happened yesterday. But what he's saying is this. If you want to follow me, you can't just live in the past. You know, the past is going to define your life. Like, it's going to be tough to follow me because I want your future to define your present. And if your past is what defines your present, then this isn't going to work for you. But if you'll trust me, if you'll follow me, if you'll leave some of this behind, what you'll find is I'll bring you to a place of new life. Come, be my disciple. Come, follow me. Don't stay where you are. And here's the reality of what Jesus is saying in this text. He's saying this, if you want to follow me, you need to reprioritize everything about your life. All of your life needs to be centered around me. And then we see one of the things that Jesus does all throughout the gospel is one of the coolest things about the character of him. Is he sees things in people that other people didn't see in them. He sees what they could be, not necessarily what they are. It's a trait that, like, right, when you've met that person who does that well in this life, right, you know they, they see you for who you could be, not for who you are yet. And they kind of speak into you something that you hoped for and longed for and you didn't even know. And you're like... That's really cool. They, there's something winsome about that. That's the character of Jesus. And here's what we find in this text from Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, again, as Jesus went on, we're going to be a theme later, right? He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? I love the picture of this. Matthew is a tax collector, and that doesn't mean much to us. We know the IRS mostly are pretty like stand-up people. They're Pretty by-the-book people in our day. Not so much in Jesus' day. Tax collectors in that day had partnered with Rome to not only take the taxes that Rome did require of their provinces, which Jerusalem and Judea and all that surrounding area Israel would have been. And so there was the requirement from Rome. But then the tax collectors would take a little bit more on top, and that's how they would make extra money. And Rome didn't care as long as Rome got what they were asking for. So the tax collectors were not thought highly of. They were kind of like the outcasts of their society. They would have been very wealthy, but they were not liked. 
And so Matthew would have been very wealthy but not liked in his community. And Jesus goes to him and says, I know who you are. I know what you're doing. Will you come and follow me? And then he says something that, like, if you didn't catch it here, it's probably there. He had just said earlier that he was homeless, right? And then he says, can I come to your house for dinner? Because I can't invite you to mine because I don't have one. But I want to come to your house for dinner. It's presumptuous, I know. But Jesus invites himself over dinner, and so Matthew throws a party. And who does Matthew invite? Well, the people that were like him because no one else is coming. So he invites the other tax collectors and those who are outcasts and sinners, those who are pushed to the margins of society. They were invited to the dinner at Matthew's house. And Jesus and his disciples go to this dinner because why? Over and over again, we see that Jesus eats and drinks with people far from God. Again and again and again. It's not just a story. There's a story of another tax collector named Zacchaeus and he climbs up a tree. Maybe you grew up in church, so you heard that story, right? Um, a wee little man. Um, but he climbs up this tree. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, I see you. Come, let me come to your house for dinner. Again, he invites himself over, and Zacchaeus says, come on over. And, he, and again, the same story. Zacchaeus invites all the people like him, and he tells them about Jesus. Again and again, we see this picture. But here's what we also find. At the end of that story, in Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus, we see these words. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus lived a life in which he pursued people far from God. Jesus lived a life in which he pursued people far from God. Rich or poor, he did not care, but people far from God, he pursued them over and over again. And the question is this, do you and I Maybe today you just seem that he's pursuing you even in these moments. And if he's pursued you and found you and you've chosen to follow him, then are you and I living in such a way where we're pursuing other people to help them come to know the depth of God's love and his character because God desperately desires them to know this, that we are his children. There's nothing you can be greater or less than that. The size of your wallet, whether it's empty or full, doesn't matter if you're valued in terms of the kingdom of God. What matters is that you know that you are invited to be known by him and that you are his. You and I are called to seek and to save the lost. Why? Because Jesus did. We're called to do what he did. And then these words from Matthew chapter 28, which is one of the kind of coolest pictures in the New Testament. It's the end of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right. One of the verses that jumps out to me always is this, this verse right here in the beginning where it says these words, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Right. Here's the reality. We believe that God knows us where we are as we are, so if you find in the midst of your doubts, you're uncertain, well, God can't want me, I doubt. He says, come follow me in spite of your doubts. Bring your doubts with you and come follow me, because what we might find is even when our doubt exists, he still invites you and I in to know him. And he invites us to do what he did over and over again. And what did he do? This is not a trick question, right? What did he do with his disciples? He discipled them. He taught them. 
He says, hey, I have taught you all this stuff. I spent three years with you teaching you all kinds of stuff. Now take everything I taught you and teach it to other people. Right? Live in such a way that by the life that you live, you reveal to other people the very character of God who is seen in me. Will you go and do this? Go and do this all over the place, all over the world. Right? This is what he invites us to again and again and again. And here's the reality for each of us in this room today, or whether you're online or wherever. Right? All of us are in a different spot spiritually than one another. We're on a unique spot on our journey of faith. Everyone is in a different spot. And what he's saying is this, wherever you find yourself, wherever you are, where you are right now, I want you to know that you can invite others on the journey because you can't share what you don't know. And you can't share what you haven't experienced. Right? So I would say it this way. You can't lead someone where you have not gone, but you can lead them where you have gone. You can't lead someone where you have not gone, but you can lead them where you have gone. So what do you mean by that? Well, you can tell people what you know, not what you don't know. And you can tell people what you have experienced, the way you have been impacted by the very Spirit of God, the way following Jesus has changed your life. You can tell people that story. If you go, well, I don't know the whole Bible, that's okay. Can you tell people what Jesus did in your life? Because if you can tell that, like, that's your story. You can own that. That's yours. And you can share it. Right? I I wish I could stand before you today and say, um, I can speak in life about what it means to be faithful all the time in every circumstance. But that would be a lie, because there have been moments where I have been unfaithful. But you can share those moments, the faithful moments and the unfaithful moments. You can share those moments about what it's been like for you in that. And Jesus tells us again, right, we're supposed to do what he did. What's he say for them to do? Go and baptize people? You're like, like, I have a bathtub. I don't have a pool in my back. All right, well, don't literally go baptize them, but tell them about your baptism. Invite them to the life of the church so they can choose to be baptized. And if you haven't been, become baptized so then you can speak about that. Or to go further, we'd say this, what's he say? Well, go and make disciples, right? In other words, follow me as I follow Jesus, so that's what I'm going to do. So, like, I, I'm not going to try to give you something I haven't done, but I'll tell you, here's what I'm doing, and I'll acknowledge and own up when I screw up. And then he says this, to teach them again and again. But here's the great news for us. It ends with this, but I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You and I do not have to do this alone. He leaves us his spirit, his presence, and one another to help one another on this journey in which we invite others to come to know him. The first goal was to be with Jesus, and the second one was to become like Jesus. But what if maybe if the more we're with Jesus and we become like Jesus, then we can do what he did? What if these things kind of go together and they play off one another? And so we'd say it this way, right? It says, go and make disciples. But if I were to translate this a little better, I'd probably say this. As you are going, or as you go, make disciples. So in other words, wherever you are, whatever it is you're doing, whatever avenue of life, at your work, at your home, at your school, you are called in those places to invite people to become disciples, followers of Jesus. Wherever you go, do what Jesus did. Go and make disciples. Baptizing them. This is the commission, the commandment of God's people. It isn't to go make nations, but it's to build his church. You and I, all nations of the world, are called to build his church. A kingdom that is radically different than every other kingdom of the world. And it is centered 
and sacrificial love. It is centered in the person of Jesus. You and I are called to do that. You and I are invited to follow him in building his church, his kingdom in this world, on earth as it is in heaven. And then here's another cool thing that Jesus so often did. I think about what's it mean for us to do what he did. Well, did you notice how over and over again he gave dignity to people that didn't seem to have any dignity in the world? He did it with Matthew. He did it with Zacchaeus. He did it in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, right? Over and over again, he says, hey, like in a culture that didn't value children the way we value children, but do you know why we value children? Because of Jesus. John chapter 4, this woman at the well, and we're going to talk about it again in a few weeks, but, but she's kind of an outcast, and she goes in the middle of the day, which is not when you would have gone there. And Jesus comes to her and says, do you want to have a life? I know who you are. I know what you have done, and I want to give you life. And I will speak to you, and I will honor you with my words and my presence, because you are worthy of dignity. Over and over again, Jesus does this. Luke chapter 7, there's this scene in which the Roman centurion goes to him and, and Jesus goes, well, I, you know, I'll go with you to your house. And he goes, no, no, you know, I'm, I understand command and, and I just, if you just say it, I believe it can happen. And Jesus goes, okay, fine. Servant's healed. To a Roman soldier? The enemy? That's the enemy. We don't talk to those people. Jesus doesn't care. He talks to them because he wants to give dignity to all people from all places and all backgrounds and all circumstances because that's who God is. And we see in John chapter 8, this woman who's caught in adultery, and she's brought before, and they're going to stone her and kill her. And, and Jesus says, well, hey, I tell you what, who's without sin? Throw the first stone. And, like, of course, no one's without sin, so they kind of know, know that, and they'll leave. And Jesus left this woman, and he says, Does none of them condemn you? And, he, and she's like, no. He goes, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Again, he has dignity in places and situations where it often wasn't given. And so I could talk all day long about things Jesus did in that way, but he also did some stuff that we... We sometimes miss if we're not careful. He spent a lot of time in prayer. Go through and read the Gospels how many times he went off to pray by himself. Or he grabbed his disciples and he went and prayed with them. Or he went and prayed here. Or he went and did this. He spent time with his Father. He spent time with God in prayer. I love that he rested and took naps. I think that's important. All right. Like, so this afternoon, when I hopefully fall asleep for a few minutes on the couch, I'm like, oh, I love Jesus. He was all about naps. My man, right? He practiced Sabbath in a few weeks. Pastor Matt's going to give a sermon on him talk about Sabbath. We're like, what's it look like to live a day of rest? Like, how do we embrace that and embody that and, and do that over and over again? He weekly went to synagogue. Look, he went every week. You can find it all throughout. He went every week to the synagogue, which is, by the way, kind of what you and I are doing today. It would be like the equivalent of going to church today. He did that every week. So, by the way, if you're going to church, you are doing what Jesus did. It's a good thing. Like, it's a great thing. Like, it's one of the practices and habits and rhythms of our life that helps us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. To do what he did literally was to go to church. All right, he healed people. All right, you may be like, well, I don't know if I can heal people. Well, here's the thing. You and I can pray and trust. You and I can offer healing in tangible ways. Sometimes we, we mentioned earlier a little Kaylin, right? If you're like, well, I, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, and I don't know how to help with cancer, but we, we have a GoFundMe on the church's Facebook page if you want to give to help the family and help this little boy who's got to go to cancer treatments every day for the next year or every week for the next year, go for it. Right? That's how we're helping in that way. You might be able to offer healing and, and like, but, but here's the thing. Sometimes we pray and God does do crazy stuff and people get healed. So what happened? We did pray with hope that that might come true. Right? If you haven't figured it out yet, Jesus loved intangible 
ways, ways that could actually be measured. And for you and I, we're called to live in tangible ways as well. So as you are going, do what he did. As you and I are going, we're called to do what he did. You love people in tangible ways. And God is calling you to love people, to do what Jesus did as you are going right now. So I was thinking about this a week. Um, I have spent in probably too much of my life in a gym, like in, around a basketball court. Like just still, even to this day, I spent most of my day in a gym yesterday, just where I spent a lot of time. And so I was thinking about how, how uniquely, how do you use the places, how do you leverage the moments that you have in those kind of places, or how do you recognize moments where God is at work? And so I thought I'd just share a couple of stories from the past couple of weeks. Um, so a couple weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, whatever it was now, um, if you didn't know, a young girl in Fruitport School System took her own life, but she was a part of the basketball program. And so Brian Packard's a part of our church, and he's the varsity girls basketball coach at Fruitport High School. And so um, a week ago Friday, he grabbed all the parents and all the players and all the people and brought them into the locker room, all of them. It was like way too many people packed in one room. And at least it was the girls' locker room, not the boys' locker room, because the smell on the boys, woo! But in the girls' locker room, it would smell like flowers or something. I don't know. Um, but Brian, like, had something read, and then he had his dad pray for everybody who gathered in that space. As you are going, where you are, are you creating opportunity for people to encounter Jesus? Right? Nothing extraordinary in that other than it was where he was, opportunity, and let's take advantage of it. Right? This last week, I went and talked to their JV girls basketball team. I don't know what I really said. They didn't listen to what I said anyway. It's fine, right? But as I was talking to their coach after... Um, he said, I was talking to a mentor of mine and just tell me what was going on. Like, I don't know what to do with this. And he said, they don't really need you to be a coach right now. They need you to be their pastor. And I was like, no, that's great advice. That's exactly it. As you are going where you are, you have opportunity where you are, right? So yesterday, um, I shared the name so we could pray for him the first verse. I won't because this isn't online. So sorry. That, um, but there was a guy we were playing with yesterday, and he shared the story about his wife who's in the hospital. And she's had all kinds of health problems. He's going to a, a very reputable hospital in another week, trying to figure out what's going on. She's young, like in her early 30s, and just has awful health issues. Like, stood up yesterday. Her heart rate went from 70 to 150 by just standing up. Right? Not good. And they can't figure out what's going on. And so he's sharing this, and he's like, she literally told me I had to go play basketball today. And so, it's, you know, it's the group of us. There's some, like, high school boys who play, and then some grown men. I'm... Um, I'm now on the older end of that, which is really a bummer to realize, too. But so um, this guy is now, actually, he's a little younger than me. But, but there's a group of us, and they're playing. And so um, I just we got done, and he's talking about it some more. And I said, hey, can I just pray for you right now? So there were a bunch of guys dripping sweat, and I just prayed for him on a basketball court. That's where I was. How do you take advantage of the moments you have? Because you're like, well, yeah, you're the pastor. You're probably supposed to think of that. I get it. No, no, no. That's not what we find in the scriptures. Hey, only those who are pastors are called to pray for people. Not in the Bible, by the way. That's a terrible understanding of Scripture. But you and I, where we have opportunity, where we have influence, where we have moments, what might happen if, as we go if we took advantage of those moments and we cared for people and we prayed for people over and over again? Right? Jesus came for you if you have lots of money or no money. Jesus came for you if you're well-educated or uneducated. Jesus came for you no matter where you find yourself. If you think you're a leader or you're not a leader— Jesus came for you and for me and for everyone else on the face of this earth, and he came for all people. And so you and I are called to go as we are going. We are called to go and make disciples, to teach them what he taught them, and to do what he did.
did over and over again to help others feel like they are connected and they belong. And the God who is the creator of all the world loves them and desires for them to be known. So what might happen if you and I committed to this, that we want to help others become connected and feel like they belong? What might happen if we embrace the vision of our church to connect people to people and people to Jesus? What if that was the primary purpose of our life? As we are going, we're going to build relationship with people and connect them to the one who loves them more than life itself. What might happen if you and I did that? What might happen if wherever we work or work out or hang out, that we recognize there are people there, that as we go, we can do the things that Jesus did. We can tangibly love people in ways that they can know and understand. Because loving them in our minds is not sufficient. We must love them with the activity of our life. We must do what Jesus did. And so maybe, just maybe today, you need to pray that God will open your eyes, that you and I begin to see people where they are as they are, not as objects to be avoided or people to deal with or not even just like, you know, coworkers we don't like, but what if we saw them as Jesus loves them, people to be loved? And then what might happen if you and I begin to love them? What might happen if the people who call themselves followers of Jesus lived as followers of Jesus? And so let's follow Jesus. Let's be with Jesus. Let's become like Jesus. Let's do what Jesus did. We pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you today, and we ask that you would help us to become more and more like you. That we would find that as we go, wherever we go, we begin to do the things that you did. That we'd offer love in tangible ways, and people would come to know the depth of your love by the character of our life, by the behaviors that we live out, by who we are. And so, Father, will you help us to see the platforms that we already have in our life to do what you did, to love in tangible ways. May we also recognize that we come to the place where we do that best when we spend time with you, when we become like you, when the practices and habits and rhythms of our life look like yours. And so, Father, will you help us to reorient our entire life around following you? And that we might find then that we've come to know life that is life to its full. The kind of life that leads to life, the kind of life that transforms not just our lives, but our families and our homes and our neighborhoods and our communities and our schools and our workplaces. And it literally will transform the world. So may we become more and more the people you've called us to be, your church. And so, Father, help us to follow you with all that we are. If we find ourselves falling short, may we confess that and acknowledge that. May we recognize your grace and your love. They transcend that. So that we can be transformed, so we can look and sound and become more like your son. And so, Father, we cannot do this on our own. May you, and the work of your spirit, may you guide us so that we can become the people of God that you have called us to be. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name.